Hello, I'm Brandon Martini, a commercial pilot and flight instructor. And I'm Carson Vasquez. I'm a private pilot. And you're listening to the Aviation Mentors Podcast, sponsored by Stratus Financial. So buckle up, because the Aviation Mentors are taking off. Welcome back, everybody, to another amazing episode of the Aviation Mentors Podcast. Uh, thanks for joining us today. I hope you all enjoyed hearing about uh, Oshkosh uh, the other day. It was fantastic uh, to talk to Dick, uh, hearing all about the things that are going to be happening at AirVenture this year. Uh, but today, we're going to be talking about something that affects every pilot once they start to venture away from their home airport, um, especially on their first uh, cross-countries, uh, navigating that airport on the ground. Uh, we've talked about flying into unfamiliar airports, but forget that flying is only half the battle to get us there. What should we do when we arrive? And really, uh, what should we do to prepare when we get there if we're not just doing a, a round robin or landing at that airport and then taking back off, right? That's pretty simple. We can listen to ATC and figure that out. But today, we're going to talk about some intricacies about before we get there, once we're there, and and how to handle the airport once we are. Well, there's a lot that goes into flying into an unfamiliar airport. Um, so, you know, really, let's just start off by acknowledging that flying into an unfamiliar and busy airport, it can just be really intimidating because there's increased air traffic control requirements or maybe brand new ones, especially if you're out of an untowered airport. Uh, there's complex taxi routes and procedural differences. No airport's the same uh, no matter where you're going. So if you're going to an unfamiliar airport, you're focused on a lot of different things. You got to find the right airport, get the right frequencies for the ATIS and CTAF. Make sure you land on the correct runway, which is a huge one. Uh, and you're looking for traffic all at the same time. And it's not really until you're clear the runway that you run into your next challenge of where to go. So one of the keys to being a good pilot is what we call the five P's. Proper planning prevents poor performance. And a good pilot is going to properly plan where they're going on the ground after they land. And there's a few steps to consider in that planning. So I think that the first step is finding where to park your plane. And you can park it at transient parking, which some airports provide, um, especially the, the smaller more, or more uh, municipal ones. Or you can go to an FBO, which is a fixed base operation. And these are essentially terminals for general aviation, but they're run by a company. And they provide a couple different services. They can provide parking, fuel, car rentals. Um, pretty much depends on where you're going. So Brandon... How do you find the FBO that you want to go to? Uh, well, there's a, several factors that really come into play here. Uh, fuel prices are normally a big one. Uh, hours of operation, um, how easy it is to access if I need to come into the airport after hours or early or what it might be. Uh, if they have ramp space, if they have hangar space, uh, the quality of their services, loyalty programs. Uh, it really just kind of depends on on what I'm looking for. Uh, I know that in the past, uh, like when I bought the Icon, of course it comes back to that, right? Um, <laughs> uh, when I bought the Icon, I needed uh, hangers to put it in because I didn't want to let it sit outside. It was this brand new shiny toy for me. And, uh, and it was an expensive one at that. You wouldn't want to leave it outside if you didn't have to. So I called airports, once, especially when I got to the Dallas area, and I was like, hey, I need to put this inside. I'm going to be leaving it there for like a week or two. So I called a bunch of places and no one had hangar space. I finally found one place um, who agreed to, to put in their hangar just because I told them I could fold up the wings and, uh, and I could put it in a corner and it'd be real easy and out of their way, which um, they were, they were, nice to, to help me do. And that was actually Jet Access. Um, Jet Access is a Stratus partner school, by the way. They're, they're a fantastic school. They've got several locations all over the U.S. Uh, 
but they were the ones they own FBOs as well. And they were the ones who, who helped me out. So, um, I, I really appreciated that at that time. Also, the quality of the service could be, um, really paramount, uh, especially if you have a large aircraft or you have some clients with you or something and you want them to have the red carpet experience or some airports and FBOs that you can get there and they will literally roll out the red carpet for you right out your door. Um, the first time that ever happened to me was at Long Beach Airport. Uh, and I don't know what it used to be called. I know it's in Atlantic now, but it used to be called something else. And it was a fantastic experience. I said, are you really rolling out the red carpet for me? And they said, of course, you're just as important as that guy in the jet right there. Me getting out of my little Cessna 172. I was like, "Whoa, this makes me feel important. Ha ha ha. (laughs) Yeah, you feel nice and important until your plane's leaking oil on the red carpet. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, luckily I didn't have that problem, Uh, but, uh, but yeah, that's exactly what what you'd feel important until. Um, but outside of that, uh, I've been to several FBOs. My favorite ones have free cookies and drinks um, and snacks uh, because after a long flight, you definitely want something in you because you need that energy back up. Uh, but I can tell you the uh, first thing that you look for as soon as you walk into an FBO is where's the bathroom? Uh, I can't tell you how many times I run into an FBO and the, I look at the the person standing sitting up at the front desk and they just point in a direction for me because they know 90% of pilots or more. That's the first question everybody asks, where's the bathroom? They just start pointing um, and it, it normally gets a chuckle out and, and whatnot. So um, I really enjoy that. Uh, but like whenever you go to a large airport um, like McCarran or any other class Bravos, you might want to call the FBOs in advance to find out what they're what their fees are. Do they have ramp fees and landing fees that are just absolutely crazy? Uh, are they $500 to park your plane there overnight? Uh, I've, I've never had one that high for like a 172, but I have one had one that high for a uh, midsize twin. So you never know. So you have to ask before. So I always look, uh, I look on ForeFlight and I check and see what the FBOs are. First, I look at what the fuel prices typically are. I want to know, uh, which one has the best price? Because I don't want to spend a dollar per gallon more when I've got to get a hundred gallons. I want to spend the least amount possible. But then I'll also ask other questions like, do I need to pay a landing fee? Do you have any ramp fees? What is your overnight fee? Does your overnight fee uh, get waived if I, if I purchase a certain amount of fuel? If so, how much fuel? Because that'll also tell me, should I not take as much fuel when I leave my home airport? Because I'm going to need to get 20 gallons here so I can save $100. So I kind of do the mental math in my head. Uh, But obviously, you want to take enough fuel to get there and make sure you have um, an hour or or more of a reserve. Uh, So I would say that those are some important things. Also, you should think about uh, what it's going to be like when you see a marshaller for the first time. Most of us don't get hand signals when we're learning to fly unless we are going to a big airport. And every time I go fly with a new pilot, and even when I was a new pilot, I would look at hand signals from marshals. And they're the people on, if you don't know what a marshal is, they're the people on the ramp that have either just their hands up or they've got red lights on or or they've got something in their hands, right? And there's a bunch of hand signals that you should know, especially turn right, turn left, stop. These are big things or pull chocks or slow down or all these different different signals uh, that somebody can give you. There's even a signal for okay. And uh, no, it doesn't have your an okay symbol. It's actually just your index finger pointing upward. Um, so I really suggest that we use the FAA publications that they give us. 
a great FAA publication is the AIM. We all have it. We've all bought in several of them, the FAR AIM. You can also look it up on the FAA's website on FAA.gov and look up a current version of the FAR AIM if you don't have a current one. And you can look up in the AIM. You can go to Chapter 4, Section 3, and Section 25 out of Section 3. I know it's a little complicated, right? Um, so if you look it up, it's 4-3-25 hand signals. And that will tell you all of the hand signals that are supposed to be used by different marsh rollers. And I would really know all of these. I mean, it's only three pages and there's only like, I don't know, 10 different hand signals that are the major ones, but you really want to know what those hand signals are. So you don't show up to an FBO and like, what is this person telling me? This doesn't make any sense to me. I've never seen these before. Honestly, you should have went over them with, with your, with your CFI before you even took your check ride, but Hey, things get missed, I guess sometimes. So, uh, but I've noticed that these get missed quite a bit when it comes to especially private pilots that don't have that much real-world experience. So I would definitely look that up. And while I'm on the topic of the AIM, there's also uh, in Section 3, so Chapter 4, Section 3, is Airport Operations. And it tells you exactly how to operate um, with airports, with a control tower, without a control tower. Basically, there's several pages. I don't know exactly how many pages, but probably 40 or 50 pages or more. You should review that. I don't know, probably not many people other than me that have read the entire FAR AIM back-to-back more than once, (laughs) Uh, but I've read the AIM like three or four times, actually, uh, back-to-back, besides just the, obviously, just looking through it, right, and trying to find the things that you need to look up. Uh, But I've looked through it several times and and read through it more than that. Uh, I would highly suggest reading the entire Section 3 of Chapter 4. Uh, it's really beneficial. It's going to tell you a lot about how to deal with different airport operations from landing at that airport to operating on the ground to dealing with the tower to dealing with other traffic. It's really a, a, a phenomenal section to read. Yeah, you know, the AIM is actually, uh, it's not a, not a bad book. It's, uh, it's, it's actually kind of the one of more interesting reads you can have in aviation because there's just so many things in that book uh, or that section of the book that um, that you can really just use. Everything from different altitudes that people can get hypoxia uh, to that chart where it has when your medical expires uh, at certain ages. So it's a good tool to use. Carson, I've got to correct you on one thing. The medical chart is actually in, uh, it's actually in the the FARs. It's not in the AIM, but the AIM does give you uh, medical information in there. So I don't want to give our, our viewers wrong information. So I just want to clarify that. Although Carson is a private pilot, sometimes we can make mistakes, just like me, even as a CFI. So I just want to make sure that we were clear on that. It's so nice having a CFI on with me all the time. It's either nice or petrifying. I don't know. <laughs> a little bit of both. It's like a constant check ride. But aside from, uh, from finding the FBO, once you come off the taxiway, how are you going to familiarize yourself with that airport, Mr. CFI? <laughs> <laughs> Well, going back a step before arrival, we should be prepped and ready, right? We should have done, uh, we should have uh, checked our NW craft checklist, right? We should have done that before we even got there. So before arrival, have your frequencies ready, um, including ATIS, um, approach control, tower, and ground frequencies. You should have all of those kind of written down or notated um, and be prepared for the unexpected. Uh, Being a pilot, Whatever you think is going to happen, something else is going to happen. So just be prepared as you can be uh, and have like the alternate frequencies and things like that written down if you go to an airport that has more than one tower frequency or more than one ground control, right? Um, If you're using an electronic flight bag or EFB, as they call it, some people call it ForeFlight or Fly uh, 
Fly Q, I think it's called. And there's a few others that are smaller that, that are also very good software. Um, load your destination airport page. Uh, all the frequencies will be listed and available there for quick reference usually. By the way, if you do that and you're using an electronic flight bag, before you leave, make sure that electronic flight bag is is up to date, right? You don't want to show up to an airport and have out-of-date frequencies. I know that I had a student uh, over at Riverside come up to me, and that student told me, uh, yeah, so ground frequency is 121.7, right? I was like, uh, no, that was a ground frequency six months ago. Um, it's now 124.125, and, and they were like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it's changed. It's like, yes, that's why we we check these things, right? Uh, that's the whole reason why we want to make sure that we have the most up-to-date information. So check your stuff before you go fly. And this person was working on a BFR, not one of those like like couple-hour BFRs. He was working on a BFR to get himself back flying after not flying for over a year. So it was, it was a several-flight thing, and he was still using his frequencies he had written down in his kneeboard from a year before that didn't work out so well for him, uh, especially flying with me. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that was, that's really kind of what I would do there. And then before your flight, um, at least as well, before you begin descending, take a look through the airport diagram. You should have that airport diagram on your kneeboard. If you don't have a kneeboard, go buy a kneeboard like today. I mean, you should go get that kneeboard immediately. Every time I have a student who is pre-solo, I ask them why they don't have a kneeboard. Uh, if they don't have one, obviously. And they always tell me, oh, I didn't think I need one. My instructor did this. My instructor did that. I'm like, no, you should have been writing down uh, these frequencies you've been getting. You should have been writing down taxi instructions since day one. So go buy yourself a kneeboard. If you don't have a pilot shop uh, at your flight school or on on airport premises, uh, go to Sporties or go to Aircraft Spruce, go to any of the websites that sell kneeboards, Amazon, doesn't matter. Uh, go get one immediately. Uh, get the VFR one if you're flying VFR. Get the IFR one if you're flying IFR. It's going to have emergency frequencies on there. It's going to have um, it's going to have a whole bunch of information on the kneeboard itself. In addition to you being able to put paper on there and writing notes, uh, which is which is really fantastic, of course, because it's well needed. Uh, so after you look at that airport diagram, and if you're not familiar how to look at an airport diagram, uh, you need to make sure that uh, you have a current one. Uh, you can get those off the FAA website. Uh, there's other places like Skyvector that typically downloads directly from the FAA and updates in real time. I just double checked this right now, and I, I pulled one up off of Skyvector literally two minutes ago. And I looked on the right side, and it is a current one because the new one came out today. Uh, and we're recording this on June 15th. So it came out today and it's valid until uh, July 13th, uh, which would be 28 days if you guys didn't realize. Uh, but these airport diagrams, you should be familiar with them. You should take a look at the airport diagram. Uh, find the FBO where you plan to park and look at the runways and taxiways nearby, as well as the hotspots. So, you know, if you might get into a little bit of trouble there. Well, speaking of hotspots, uh, you know, most people aren't lucky enough to have airports as simple as Corona Airport or even Riverside uh, for having two runways. It's a very simple airport. But some people end up with an absolute challenge of a taxi like Chino Airport, uh, which the FAA actually has a video on how to taxi at Chino Airport. I don't know if you remember that one, Brandon. I do. Um, yeah, it's it's uh, it's a pretty popular you know destination for uh, for taxi trouble. So what should you do to prepare to figure out where to taxi? Yeah, well, that brings us to the taxi diagram that I, I kind of mentioned, or airport diagram. Um, these are detailed charts that display the layout of the airport, including runways, taxiways, 
terminal buildings, hangars, sometimes even flight schools. Um, they're essential for navigating uh, on the ground, helping pilots avoid getting lost uh, on the taxiways or on familiar airports. It's important to know where the destination is on the diagram that you're going to be going to and be able to taxi uh, there from anywhere you exit on the runway. If you're still confused on where to go or you're overwhelmed with the with a particularly difficult landing area, uh, you can always ask for progressive taxi instructions. But I'll tell you this, every time I've ever asked for a progressive taxi, um, it's a 50-50 chance if the controller is going to be a little bit annoyed by it, uh, especially if it's at a really big airport. Uh, but some of them, just like we're all, we're all people, some, some of the controllers are just fantastic and they'll just give you kind of step-by-step. But other ones, they'll be a little busy and they might not be able to give you the exact uh, progressive taxi. But when you ask for a progressive taxi, all it really means is, hey, go to this next exit, make a left, and then go to the next exit, make a right, et cetera. So that's all that's expected or should be expected when you actually ask for a progressive taxi. Uh, but most people think a progressive taxi is they're going to kind of call out every turn as you approach it. And that's not necessarily correct, although about half the controllers will be will do that and they're really extra nice. Uh, but it really kind of depends on workload. I was actually trying to find, um, I think it was the transient parking at Chino that's hidden way back there. Am I right? It is. Yeah, it's it's in a place that shouldn't even be there. <laughs> uh, it, it was nighttime. The, the tower is about to close in like maybe 10 or 15 minutes. And I pulled off and I was at the base of the tower and I'd asked to go to transient parking. Um, and I was, I was looking at my kneeboard on my, my taxi diagram, trying to find out where the heck this parking was. Um, and I stayed there just long enough that the, the controller got on with me and said, hey, uh, would, you, would you like progressive taxi instructions? And I was like, yes, please. He, he knew that I, I was going to have a struggle, especially in the nighttime, trying to find out where I was going. So sometimes, you know, if they're not busy, especially, and they notice you struggling, uh, they'll even offer it to you. Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've seen controllers do that uh, as well. And I'm even looking on the airport diagram for Chino right now. I pulled it up just a few minutes ago. And it actually doesn't even have transient marked on here. Um, and I think the reason for that is a building burned down at Chino Airport, which the building looks like it's missing off this map now as well. Um, and when that building burned down, it kind of took all of the area uh, that the transient parking was at and took it over with a fence for debris. I don't really know why that happened, but it did. So it's not even listed on here anymore. So the only option you might have is to go to an FBO at airports like that. Uh, while talking about taxi diagrams, though, you should really check the FAA website uh, to get the most current taxi diagram. Uh, I went today on skyvector.com and you can use ForeFlight as well as an electronic flight bag as, or whatever electronic flight bag you use. But the most important thing is to make sure that the document you're looking at is up to date. So for example, on the airport diagram for Chino that I just pulled up, on both sides, the left and the right side of the airport diagram, it has a date. And it also has uh, which airport facility directory. Now they call it, uh, they call it a chart supplement now. <laughs> um, it used to be called an AFD. Now it's called a chart supplement. So if you look in the chart supplement for your particular area around the U.S., it's for, for California, at least Southern California, it's um, SW-3, Sierra Whiskey-3. So it'll say that uh, so you can look it up in a reference material. Uh, and then it also has a date that it's valid from and to. Uh, the date of this recording right now is 615. So it's 
uh, this one I'm looking at is valid from uh, June 15th, uh, 2023, all the way until uh, July 13th, 2023, which should be 28 days, if my math is correct, um, as, <laughs> uh, as most of these are, are valid for 28 days nowadays. If not always, I think that got changed, so it should be always. Don't quote me on that, but I'm pretty sure. Uh, but on here, there's a lot of useful information uh, from runway lengths to runway slopes to uh, field elevation, where the field elevation was measured from, where the tower elevation is. Uh, also, you can also look and see what are the intersecting runways. And then you're also going to see some things that we just talked about called hotspots. And normally it's HS1, HS2, HS3, HS4, whatever it is, it's HS something. And uh, there could be, I don't know, you could be going to Chicago O'Hare and there could be 20 of them. I don't know. I don't have that one in front of me, but there could be a lot of them, right? So there could be zero. There could be a lot. And you can actually look up uh, in the chart supplement uh, what all of those hotspots actually are there for. They'll tell you. Uh, I'm not quoting off the top of my, I'm just quoting off the top of my head, but they'll say something along the lines of uh, multiple um, runway incursions have happened here, multiple taxiway incursions have happened here. And they'll normally give you a reason on why that's a hotspot. I know at Riverside, there's a large hotspot for runway 34, and it's due to low tower visibility. Uh, and that's why that they have that, because there's a building that blocks it, and now they use a camera system to look at it. So there's normally a, a rough reasoning why it's why it is a hotspot, and the reason why there's a video on hotspots at Chino Airport, which is uh, Charlie November Oscar Airport, if anybody wants to go look it up uh, on YouTube, uh, published by by the FAA, is because there were so many runway and taxiway incursions at this airport. I believe at one point it had the most runway and taxiway incursions out of any airport in at least Southern California, if not across the U.S. It was. It was a lot. It was it wasn't a good thing. So they they put this out there uh, for people to review. And I remember watching it several years ago uh, when it came out, and it was really helpful and really insightful because um, one of these hotspots, if you exit on Lima uh, from runway two six left, you're going to go Lima, cross runway two one, continue on Lima to Delta Kilo then cross runway 26 right, then kilo to alpha, delta, mic, then to your hangar. I mean, just me saying that and looking at it is kind of crazy in my head, right? I've done that taxi, I don't know, 50 or 100 times. I've done it a lot. Uh, and I bring students there, especially because it's such a difficult thing. But I have to be on my students about that because I want them to experience it, but know how difficult it is and actually experience it once before in case they are ever in that predicament. They need to take it slow, really look at all the signage, know what they're doing, and exactly know what to do, especially in that Lima Kilo Delta area, uh, which is hotspot four on that map. It's really complicated and confusing. So if you are going to this airport and you have the potential to uh, get yourself into one of these hotspots that gets confusing, make sure that you either bring an instructor with you or Go ask an instructor. Have an instructor brief you on this taxi diagram so you can really understand what they're saying. And I know a lot of large airports, they're going to have Alpha 1, Alpha 2, Alpha 3, Alpha 4. And so that's also another reason why you want, whenever you're repeating back taxi instructions, I, I talked to an, uh, a student about this yesterday, and I said you really want to make sure you don't use the words 2 and 4 because you could have an Alpha 4, Delta 2, and those are actually taxiways. They're not take Delta 
2 alpha, it's delta 2, alpha 4, or whatever it may be with the number. And it's corresponding as a number, not a direction. So make sure you're really careful on using terminology, especially in the air um, or on the ground. Words like 2, T-O, or T-W-O, or 4, F-O-R versus F-O-U-R. I know that's probably a little more than, uh, than I was going to talk about on this, but um, I think those things are really important uh, because they can confuse people uh, quite a bit and they can confuse students, instructors, and even ATC if you're repeating these things back to them. Yeah, you know, there's, there's reason that we use standard terminology and we have explanations for everything like the hotspots. Uh, it's funny you mentioned that one in particular because that's the one my DP made me taxi through on my check ride. That's um, awesome. Yeah, but you had actually taken me there before and done the exact same thing with me. So I was actually ready for it. One day when I become a DPE, I can tell you that will be on my check ride. I think it's a fantastic part of the test. I mean, it really tests somebody's ability to be able to uh, uh, to get through a hotspot and get through a place that is confusing. Cool. We have one part of the gouge done for you. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> well, you know, it is really important that when you're going to a destination, you're prepared for it. Uh, we... As pilots, we prepare for the destination and the journey. So although we train relentlessly for taking off, climbing, cruising, descending, and landing, you must know what to do after you land. And preparing for it beforehand takes massive load off your shoulders and really just makes the entire experience more enjoyable, relaxing, and just less for you to worry about. It really does. And I know that we've we've had a whole episode on, on different terminology and different things like that, but um, I just want to remind everyone do your NW craft uh, checklist. It's um, it's something the FAA wants you to do. Um, and that is check your NOTAMs, check your weather, check your known ATC delays, check your runway lengths, uh, alternates available, the fuel requirements, and your takeoff and landing distances. Um, in addition to that, do some of the things we talked about today. Uh, really know that, uh, uh, that airport diagram. Know exactly where you're going to go. Prep for that FBO that you're going to be heading into. Uh, just all the things we talked about today, read that far aim so you know what those hand signals mean. Uh, these are all really important things as you become a pilot and uh, sometimes aren't really stressed uh, that heavily uh, as a student pilot uh, before you get your private or, or above. So make sure you go check those things out. Um, I really enjoyed this episode because I got to teach a little bit, Carson, rather than uh, than just talking. And uh, we, don't, we don't do that much on here lately. Uh, so this was a lot of fun for me. So I'm glad we came up with this idea. And, uh, and I hope everybody got a lot out of this. So uh, as always, if you'd like to reach out to either one of us, you can reach us at Twitter, Instagram. For me, it's at Mr. Martini Guy. For Carson, it's at Carson underscore AV17. You can also reach us by our preferred method, which is email, Brandon at AviationMentors.com. Or you can reach Carson at Carson at AviationMentors.com. And as a wrap up for the day, remember, we're here to guide you in your aviation journey. So taxi safe and enjoy the ride. See ya.